Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Um, would you open up your Bibles to, well, actually just listen, because it's one verse this morning. We'll be reading many more, but... Uh, Here's the verse that we're going to be studying this morning, and this is from the Word of God, and therefore it is eternally true. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the Word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every one of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, this is a chapter from a book I'm working on on fatherhood. This is Father's Father's Day. When I was in Wisconsin working at churches where a lot of the people were farmers, there was a picture that hung in a lot of the dining rooms, living rooms, or kitchens. And it was a picture of two farmers walking next to each other. Um, They both had bib overalls on. They both had a cap on. They were both very proud and, and content as they walked. One of them carried a pail. And the one that carried a pail was about three years old. So they were identical, but one was three and the other was like 35. And the one carrying the pail was the one that shouldn't have been carrying the pail. But he was so happy to be helping his dad with his work. And his father was so proud to have a son next to him, helping him with his work. When I worked in Wisconsin, I often thought about the health of America because of her family farms. And at that time, uh, there was a lot of debate about public policy toward family farms. A lot of those farms are now no longer being worked. They're going back to trees, to, to other things. And I thought, you know, if I were to argue publicly for the health of family farms, it would be not on the basis of sustainability, uh, which often is really idolatry by another name, But rather, it would be on the basis that on the family farm, you still have an an environment and a context where you can have natural relationships between mother, father, husband, wife, parent, and children. And so on a family farm, you will uh, have, uh, uh, first of all, on a family farm, there is no patronization of the little lady. Anybody grown up on a farm? Anybody here? You know what I'm talking about. You don't patronize the mother, the wife. Why? (laughs) Because she works as hard as everybody else does. And so she's never called the, the little lady. Why? Well, because she's out there helping with the milking, helping with the washing, helping to clean the bulk tank. She's the one that you get to do some of the field work when it's fall and you've got to get the corn in. She will plant, and she has certain turf that belongs completely to her. Many, most family farms, the, 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 the turf that absolutely belongs to the woman of the home is cutting the grass. And, you know, there were, there were more than one farm wife who expressed to me anger at her husband cutting her grass. She did not want her husband cutting her grass. Another thing that I would say probably most family farms um, have is they have the wife handling the books. Well, in farming, farming is really a subsidiary of big government. Uh, You know, the success of the farm depends largely on your ability to use government programs, put some fields into reserve, and, and, you know, and it's a complicated thing. And It is very common for the woman to be the one that handles the check writing, the bookkeeping, the application for federal programs, the relationship with with the dairy that they sell, sell the milk to. 
So now, come back to that picture. If you're ready to buy into my declaration that a family farm is one of the only places left where man, woman, husband, wife, parent, child, brother, sister, work together, live together, and nobody's patronized and nobody's weak. And I show you this picture of the father and son once again. And it's a manifestation of the health of the family farm. Because in that picture, you see something that we live out because it's there in the Godhead. And that is a father who loves to share his work with his son. And a son who loves to share his work with his father. Now... I grew up with this, and my father was not a farmer, anything but. He was, he, was, he was a city slicker. And when my dad did his work, which was writing and speaking, he would have us help him with it. I remember when he was going to uh, be speaking at Wheaton, he asked me to come down. I was a pastor up in Wisconsin at the time, and he said, you know, stop by the office. You can come to the, to the forum with me and help me. So I went to his office, and uh, we worked together on what he was going to say. And every month he had a column for 25 years in a 10th Presbyterian publication that originated not under Jim Boyce and not under Phil Rankin. All right, there, I got that out of my system. It long predated them. And in that column, every month he would read his column to us prior to submitting it. And we would always make suggestions. He'd always take our suggestions. If he wrote a book, I remember when we were in Cape May one year, um, family vacation, Mary Lee and I had recently been married, and one evening after dinner he said, come on in the living room, I want to read to you. So he got out his book and he read his whole book to us as we sat there one evening. He got done. And Mary, he said, what do you think? And Mary Lee and I looked at him, and we were quiet for a second. And we said, well, you know, the dialogue is just a little bit stilted. And that caused him to put that book away for a couple of years and not to pursue publication. And so it can be a family farm. It can be a writer. But I grew up in a home where it was absolutely clear that we lived to share our father's work, and dad loved to have his sons working with him. And so I thought that's what every young man grew up in, <laughs> you know? I thought everybody grew up working with his dad. And then I became a pastor, and I realized what a rare treat I had. Not just that he would let us work with him, but that he wanted it and that he would take our advice. <laughs> Some of you should be laughing right now because it's inconceivable <laughs> with your dad, you know, that he would take your advice. I didn't think much about it. I just was sad that other men didn't grow up with this until, and in fact, I'll tell you, David's going to have a cow because he knows how short on time I am this morning, but I'll tell you one other story, which was when Mary Lee and I were out in Boulder working at First Prez, um, my, father, uh, my father was going to be speaking at Deer Valley Ranch, which is down near Buena Vista and in the Rockies, and he called me up and he asked me if the two of us would come and do the children's ministry. It was a, a camp for rich men, um, and he was going to be the speaker. And those rich men are called physicians, by the way. And uh, it was a doctor's camp. And I was so excited that I got to do it. And then all of a sudden, he had a heart incident, and he had to cancel speaking. One of the greatest disappointments in my life was that I was not able to be there with Mary Lee, uh, helping him uh, at that camp. So we move on in life, and as pastors, we try to 
encourage the people in our church to not spend the rest of their lives being resentful and bitter over what they didn't grow up with, but try to live generously in such a way that they can share in our dad, tell a lot of stories about dad, have them into your home, you know, uh, more when I was younger, but work with them, yell at them the way your dad yelled at you, you know, that's part of working, right, Don? I mean, you know, what's the point of working with your son if you don't yell at him? But make sure the wife isn't there to hear you, <laughs> you know, because she'll think you're, well, never mind. But it never occurred to me to think in terms of this being the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Yeah, it just never occurred to me. I just saw this as, you know, a fleshly thing, worldly thing, you know, Father to son to son, you know, queen, Turgenev. Then one day I was reading. In the, you know, you'd know which gospel it is, right? I hope you know your Bibles. Which gospel would it be? Of course it would be John, right? You all know this. John is the one that presents this intimate relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And this is what I came across, and it hit me right between the eyes. John chapter 5. Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Now it's very interesting if you look up there to see what they capitalize. Because the capitalization, I think, alienates you from one of the most important meanings of this text. You see the capital H, you know, himself. You see the capital F, the capital S. And you think to yourself, oh, well, Jesus is talking about his relationship with his father. And, of course, you should think that because that's what Jesus is talking about. But this could as easily be read as a description of every healthy home, right? Where you just simply have the son doing nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. That beautiful picture in all the farmhouses is a precise image of the truth that this describes. He's seen his father carry the pail, and so by gum, he's going to carry the pail. And here I go again. I shouldn't have said that because that's a minced oath. Minced oaths are where you don't say by God, you say by gum. And so it's cursing, all right? And I shouldn't. I've done that three times in the last two years. Never did it before. And by the way, it's weird. I do it in the pulpit. I don't do it outside of the pulpit. And do you know why that is? <laughs> the reason is that when I'm in the pulpit, I try to speak the way the common world speaks. And so sometimes I snooker myself. Now, I know you wanted to know that about preaching, right? Aren't you happy? <laughs> so pray that I'll be on guard and not do that. So anyhow, here we have a beautiful description of that picture, and that picture is a beautiful description of this, isn't it? Right? This is fatherhood, and this is sonship. And so as I read this and thought about it, it hit me for the first time, and you can condemn me that I was stupid, and I was. But I thought to myself, God, listen, this is a very complicated truth, and I'm being facetious. God was Jesus' father. Isn't that weird that I'm saying that? 
God is Jesus' Father. Jesus is God's Son. God commands his Son to follow him in his work, and the Son loves the Father and does exactly what he's seen. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because the Father and the Son are the, are the, the original, and you and I are copies. Okay? And so if we're going to understand what we are to be as fathers and sons, we must look at the original so that we become conformed to that image because we are image bearers. We are made in the image of God. Now, immediately when, when I preach this, I want to kill a heresy that has been there from the beginning of the church and continues to today. And that heresy, we don't know it this way, but it started with Marcion. And today we just know it, it's called evangelicalism or dispensational evangelicalism, but that's to be redundant. Evangelicalism in the last hundred years is always dispensational. And dispensationalists love to, to, to uh, use the knife to cut up scripture. Okay? And so they'll, they'll say, this is this and this and this, and this is this and this and this. And, 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 and they'll use a meat cleaver and they'll just dice, you know, like popeel, you know? You know? And one of the things they do is they separate scripture into the Old Testament and the New Testament, and what they tell you is the God of the Old Testament is a God of justice and anger and wrath, and he consumes the wicked. And the God of the New Testament is Jesus, and he's love. So the Father God is wrath, and the Son God is sweet baby Jesus, grown up. Now, I'm telling you, every single one of you have sucked this in from the churches you grew up in until you're not aware of it. And that's what culture is. It's the milk you drink at your mother's breast without even knowing it's milk, let alone whether it's any good for you. And that's the culture of the church today. The church today hates the God of the Old Testament. Or you'd never say you hate him. You just say, I'm so glad that my pastor only preaches from Galatians and Corinthians. Thank you for laughing. Thank you for laughing. Where would we be without John and Mark and Esther? And so what we do is we break up the Trinity and we put God, the Father, in opposition to his Son. Nothing is more radically contrary to everything Scripture shows us than that. God is a Trinity and they exist, the three persons of the Trinity, in perfect harmony with each other from eternity past to eternity to come. Jesus is not correcting his Father from all the errors of the Old Testament. In fact, even if you want to not think about the Trinity, God's justice is not at odds with God's love. Never the perfections of God are every single one of them perfect. Okay, they're all perfect. God's justice is beautiful and loving and harmonious and peaceful and merciful. Why? Well, because God is merciful and peaceful. And so because he's perfectly peaceful, his justice is perfectly peaceful. You see? You cannot turn all of God and his revelation and his church and salvation history into a dualism where, you know, someday we hope that God's love will triumph over his justice because who can abide the day of his coming? 
God's justice exists to perfectly parade his love. And his love exists to perfectly parade his justice. None of them are fighting against each other. And neither is the son fighting against the father. You with me? Christianity is not dualism, and we just hope the right side wins. And that's the basic doctrine of most evangelical churches today. That's why everybody can't say any word but grace. They can never say law. (laughs) Because the minute you say law, you're back in the Old Testament. We can't have the Old Testament God around anymore because Jesus kicked him out. And that's heresy. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit exist in perfect harmony from eternity past to eternity to come. So when we look at the Father and the Son loving one another, when we look at the Son obeying the Father, we don't have to look at this the way all the egalitarian crypto-feminists do, where they say, well, he only obeyed his Father while he was here on earth in, in an incarnate form. It's like, no. From eternity past to eternity to come, we have order in the Trinity, and it's no threat to the equality, and it's not fighting against each other. You know, feminists cannot imagine ever having authority that doesn't fight against submission and submission that doesn't fight against authority. But if we will define ourselves by the Trinity, then it all evaporates because what do we hear? We hear Jesus saying, what? My father is working until now and I myself am working. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. The father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. You know, (laughs) harmony, 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 peace, unity, no dualism. Now, there's another place that this comes out, and that's in the issue of pictures of Jesus. Every time we bring that up, people go, oh, come on, don't get so uptight. Doctrine doesn't matter, just how you feel. That's what matters. And all my feelings are pious. I wake up with pious feelings, and I go to bed with pious feelings, and I have pious dreams at night. Listen, doctrine matters. When you think about what I just preached, that the Trinity exists in perfect harmony, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's doctrine. I snookered you. You just ate doctrine. And isn't it freeing to realize that you were made to see such a beautiful relationship between you and your Father? And so God gives it to you, and forget your Father. It don't matter. Because God's your father. God's your father. And so we come to pictures of Jesus. And, you know, we don't want to hear doctrine. We don't want to have explicit truth propositions told us because we want our religion to be feelings, right? And we want all of them to be pious. But look. How are you going to have pious feelings about the Old Testament God when he consumes the Canaanites? Have you ever tried to marshal that pious feeling? You know, kill all the animals and all the women and all the children and all the men. I mean, you know, that, that's not something that you just find welling up within you pious feelings in the morning. You know, that kind of reminds you about Apocalypse Now. And then you realize that God said that he would delay the Israelites coming to the promised land until the Canaanites had filled up the cup of wickedness. God delayed his judgment until the Canaanites' wickedness had grown so great that they actually would kill their little children. They themselves, mothers and fathers, would kill their little children. And all of a sudden, (laughs) kind of gets scary, doesn't it? 
And so when it comes to pictures of Jesus, what do we see in our pictures of Jesus? Well, we see our idols, right? We see hair that any woman would kill for, right? You've seen these pictures of Jesus. He has big hair, right? And he has kind of this sort of, sort of mystical kind of otherness to him, you know, and yet kind of masculine at the same time. And kind of that sort of androgynous masculine kind of sexy thing, you know, where the hair is feminine and the look is kind of feminine, but the body's masculine, right? Honestly, with a, a few small alterations, you could put them on the cover of any gothic, any romance novel. Honestly. It, and, and it would be just as seductive as whoever that model is that does them all. I forget his name. Anybody here know his name? Don't admit it, but what's his name? <laughs> what's his name? Fabio. Fabio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, isn't that kind of what Jesus looks like? It is. Now, why do you think it's okay, despite Scripture's command, that you are commanded not to make images of God? Thou shalt not make any graven images. Why do you think you can do it? Why do you think you can look on them without being perverted? I mean, if you look at those pictures of Jesus, what they all say is that the God of the New Testament is approachable, right? Nobody ever thinks that those pictures are the God of the Old Testament, right? And that's what idols always do. Idols always mediate the tension between the God who is and the God who isn't. Idols always present an approachable God who leaves behind the God of a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire, it says. Idols always take some of our tension away so that we have more, and I want to say faith to approach God, but it's not faith. We have more, what? Presumption. Idols always encourage presumption in approaching God. The Israelites didn't want to deal with the God who was a consuming fire that was up on top of the mountain giving the law of God. And so what did they do? They made a golden calf. And then, what did they do immediately when they made the golden calf? They had a sexual orgy. That's what they were doing. Somehow, it's hard to imagine if they hadn't made the golden calf that they could have a sexual orgy, right? And so what you see is, you see America rejecting the holiness and the judgment of God and the wrath of God, embracing as they see it the love and mercy and grace of God, all right, and then coming out with all these Bible story books that have all these pictures of Fabio. And would you even believe it? This Christian nation moves over into homosexuality and into incest and into child abuse. And all these Bible story books are published by wonderful Christian publishers like Mary Lee's father. He wrote the bestseller of them all. <clears throat> and we give it away as a church. We buy them. We use your money to buy these books. And when we meet with new parents, we give them a copy of this book with pictures of Jesus in it. There you go. Since last week, Jody was talking to... Um, to uh, Alex Costa and his wife, Sarah. Would you stand up, Alex? Because nobody knows who you are. Hi, Alex. And so they were over on the table in Tabitha because this is what everybody does, was giving them a copy of the Bible and pictures for little eyes. And, and I looked at them and I, you know, I thought about this and I said, yeah, there are pictures in, of Jesus in there. And he looked at me quizzically, and he said, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. And I said, well, you know, buy a Sharpie. <laughs> I mean, honestly. Listen, guys, trust me. You love for me to teach you. 
that God the Father and God the Son exist in perfect harmony. You love that. Don't you realize that the minute you love God's truth, Satan will try to destroy it. He'll destroy it through dispensationalism where you think you can forget about the Old Testament God and still love the unity of the Father and the Son. And you can't. He gave you the Old Testament because it's absolutely essential. Do you understand? And then you think you can go ahead and read Bible stories to your kids. It's no big deal. And you can have pictures of Jesus at your church just to help the little kids. It won't corrupt you because you know better than to think that that picture is Jesus. But you grew up looking at it. <laughs> you know, what do you think is happening to your children? Now, I know, listen, listen, I know that this is hard for you to hear. I know that. But people, God is not a mean ogre trying to rob you of, of, of things that are helpful. He gives you laws because the laws are helpful. And he does not want you ending up with an image of Jesus being Fabio. And that's always what's going to happen. Why? Well, because we know what Jesus actually looked like. Scripture reveals it. And here's what Scripture actually tells us Jesus looks like. Okay? If I can find it. It's in what chapter of Scripture? Isaiah 53, verse 2. He, referring to Jesus, had no form or comeliness. What is comeliness? That's what you want a woman to have if you're going to ask her to marry you. Prettiness, handsomeness, uh, easy to look at. He, Jesus, had no form. So in other words, his body form or comeliness, his body appearance. He had no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now I tell you, if this is what scripture tells us he looked like, why do no pictures ever, ever, ever show him that way? Why? And then you realize why God says, thou shalt not make any graven images. Because you think, you know, I'll bet that those pictures that we have that don't look this way have a purpose in not looking this way. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to lead you and to seduce you away from the true God. And you think, well, I'm above that. Pictures don't have any impact on me. I know who the true God is. And I know that he's the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, but my little children have, I mean, you know, and then you go off into this thing about how, you know, he, are you denying the, the physical incarnational aspect of, of the gospel? And it's like, no. Oh, yes, you are, because you won't let us have pictures. And what do you think of Eastern Orthodoxy? You know, last night I was reading in Sleepwalkers an account of the new diplomat uh, aid. Uh, going to Russia right before the First World War. And he was talking about a point, uh, 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 crossing the frontier into Russia, and all of a sudden everything got wacko. And one of the things that was wacko, he said, was all over in, in, the, in the train stations, in dusty, dirty corners, were all these icons with candles underneath them. Come on, people. You're Christian. We don't do that. And you say, well, Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism do. Well, maybe not Lutheran, but certainly. And I say, yes, and so did the Israelites when they came in the promised land. And so what? You think that because the majority of Christians all through history have had images and icons of Jesus that it's okay for you to have them and you can still retain orthodox doctrine, true biblical faith. It doesn't matter if you're an idolater because most Christians are idolaters. And I say, well, forget about Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism because the truth is 
you're an evangelical Protestant, right? Most of us, right? Hold up your hand. And you have Bible story books with pictures of Jesus. And so why bother thinking about Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism? How about us? So just take a Sharpie. It's so simple to be obedient. And then when your children say, what's that ugly black thing there? You can say, well, it's a picture of Jesus because he was ugly and... and, and, and Listen, it's my job to preach, and it's your job to obey God. And what that means is I take Scripture and I tell you what it says, and then it's your job to apply what God says to you, to your life, to your children, to your home. Okay? It's not my job to come up with a way of figuring out how you can have Bible story books published, written by my father-in-law. We give them away. Maybe, I don't know, the elders, if you want to bring it up on the agenda that we use, we have Tabitha use the Sharpie. But you know, I think there's a certain logic in making parents use the Sharpie, right? Unless, Drew, you want to be our Sharpie man, you know. (laughs) May we get Moody Press to put out a version that doesn't have pictures of Jesus, you know? All right. All right. Okay, you see, here's where we're at. Jesus does his Father's will. He does the work he's seen the Father doing. The Father then delights in Jesus. And how do we know that? Because you remember several places in the Gospels it says what? This is my beloved Son. It is so obvious the love that God the Father has for his Son, right? Right? And so what we see is the harmony and the unity of the Godhead, right? And it's so, it's, you can almost taste it with the Father and the Son, right? Okay. And so, and there are different kinds of dispensationalism. Dispensationalism that says the God of the Old Testament we're done with, that's a heresy. Not dispensationalism is a heresy, but dispensationalist teaching that we're done with the God of the Old Testament, that's a heresy, all right? Okay, because there can be more biblical dispensationalism. Then we get to the images. We don't do images because, again, this sets us up to think that Jesus is feminine, and he's not. Then we embrace what Scripture does show us about the Father, particularly at the places where no woman approves, right? Because after all, you know the old, you know, the old cartoon, the old saying, which is, I remember it as a cartoon where a woman looks at her husband, she says, honey, you're a man and I'm a woman and therefore I can never fully approve of you. And it's really true, right? Okay, and so then we look in Scripture for the places where we see Jesus doing things that no woman will ever fully approve of. Now, do you know where those two places are that I want to remind you of this morning? One of them is when Jesus has been in Jerusalem with his family, and his mother is on the way home, and she remembers that Jesus is, is missing, and she gets her husband, and they go back to Jerusalem. They find him in the temple talking to the people with PhDs from Cambridge in New Testament, or Old Testament at the time. And his mother says to him what? You have been a real pain to your father and to me. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, let me read it to you because I don't remember it exactly. It says, they were all, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And she said, son, why have you treated us this way? Right? That's a mother, right? Why have you treated us this way? What she really means is me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> come on, admit it. Come on, come on. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And Jesus answered, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? 
Now, you know he's rebuking his mother there because she says, your father and I, he says, I had to be in my father's house, right? And then we see in John 2, Jesus found in the temple, and what is the temple for Jesus? You just heard it. What is it? His father's house in the temple, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, and he made a scourge of cords, that means a whip, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. So it's a, it's a real, <laughs> it's a real, what would you call it, like a, uh, it's a riot, you know? Because it's the money changers, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. Can you imagine the stuff on the floor? and the noise, and the bouncing into bodies of each other. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And at this point, you think you're dealing maybe with that God of the Old Testament. Certainly not Fabio. He only does that with women that he loves. Otherwise, he has no passion, right? And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Isn't it sad that today fathers are universally made fun of? Universally. it, It is everywhere. And the highest, the paragon of fatherhood today is the father who's always made fun of and takes it in good stride because it shows his magnanimity. And Jesus defends his father's house. He is furious. Do you know, I would, I, I would wager, if I were a wagering man, I would wager that Jesus got punched and kicked as he did his father's cleanup. We don't think of that, but what, you know, if you were the money changer <laughs> and he's flipping up your coins all over the floor, the tables, the ox, the sheep, burp, 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 do you think you just sit and say the Lord's Prayer? You know what I'm saying? This was a riot. And why? He says, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples, it says, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus was consumed with zeal for his father's house. Remember I said, think of the places where no woman will ever approve of what Jesus did. He rebuked his mother and he he caused a riot. And it was because he was consumed with zeal. It's so pathetic today that the only way we can even enter into such zeal for our father is to think about somebody making a comment about your mother. And boy, you say, yo, mama, and there will be, there will be a reckoning, won't there? Yo, father, I mean, it's not even a phrase, you know? Your father wears slippers? (laughs) This is ridiculous. We have no zeal for our father today. None. No zeal. Jesus was consumed with zeal for his father's honor and for his house. Father and Son. And so what we read in Scripture is we read that Jesus was obedient to death, even the death on a cross. Why? Well, because of the nasty God of the Old Testament, the Father God, that Scripture says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so the most precious statement in all of Scripture of love 
is a statement about God the Father, who loved you so much in your sin that he gave his only begotten son. What does it mean when he gave? It means that he sent him to the cross. So, Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me, Jesus prayed at Gethsemane right before he was crucified. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So how did we come up with Fabio and the God of the Old Testament and them like this? How did we come up with this doctrine that Jesus only submitted to his father in his incarnate state? It's like this. Jesus does the work that he sees his father doing. He sees his father's love for sinful Adam, man. And Jesus comes to right the wrong. He pays the penalty on the cross. He goes to his death. He pleads with his father before he dies. Father, if it be, if it be possible, would you take this cup from me? Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And then he's on the cross, and what do they, they mock him. He said he was the son of God. Let him deliver him if he's the son of God. And yet, precisely because he was the son of God, he was on the cross, and his father commanded it, and he went to his death. And what was the greatest pain on the cross? Well, because we're materialists, we love reading all these, you know, medical descriptions of the the sinews and the muscles and the lungs and the asphyxiation and all this other stuff. I don't want to minimize the physical suffering of Jesus, but what was the top of his suffering? It was right before he died, where he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the only time in all of eternity, the Father and the Son were not right with each other. And yet there was never a time when the Father and Son were more right with each other. And the rightness was that the Father forsook the Son because he bore on himself the sins of the world. And that's the gospel, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit working in perfect harmony, being perfectly faithful to the holiness and justice of God, and perfectly faithful to his love and to his mercy. And there... Justice and mercy kiss. And peace for you is the fruit. Now, it would be very easy to take these truths of Scripture and to do what we always do, especially in postmodernism, which is to make them personal. There's this cloying aspect of postmodernism. Everything's personal. This is so stultifying. If you don't know the word stultifying, look it up. There's a reason you don't know the word. It's because the entire world you live in is stultifying. There's no freedom anymore. It's like everything is your mother's breast. Femininity and sentimentality and emotions and political correctness. And you can't even think because then your brain says naughty, naughty, naughty. Right? And so at this world that we live in, because everything's personal and because everything's soft, what we'll think is, 
well, I'm going to try to live as a, 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 a son, or I'm going to try to be a father that's, that resembles God the Father and God the Son. It's such a nice picture. I never had that. I'm going to give that to my son, right? That's how, that's how we're going to react to these biblical truths. But listen, you can never be a father like God the Father until you come under the blood of his son, until you're wearing robes that are white because they've been washed in the blood of the lamb. There is no hope for you that's psychological. There's no hope for you that's psychiatric. There's no hope for you in education and helping you to make the right choices. Have you noticed? Despite knowing what all the right choices are, you seem to continue to make all the wrong choices. Education won't help. It may get you rich and then you have more money to make the wrong choices. The only application of this that matters to you this morning is not in your home, it's not in your marriage, it's not in your extended family. It's that you come under the work, the completed work of the Son of God who was sent by the love of his Father to purchase your redemption from the Father's judgment and wrath when you die. That's it. And if you will come under the Son, and be washed in his blood until you're white. And how does that work? Anybody ever done laundry? If you will come under him by faith, then you will be a father like God the Father. And you will be a son like God the Son. And you will raise little, little sonnies who have their picture taken next to their father holding a five-gallon bucket they can't keep off the ground because they're not tall enough. Do you understand me? Don't take this as a way of, 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 of healing the emotional pain you have. That emotional pain goes back to Adam. It ain't never going to be healed until you come under the completed work of Jesus Christ. And you believe in the Son of God because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says, how do you think that father is going to treat those servants that kill that son? And those are the only two options. You're either those who killed Jesus, the Son of God, or you're those that come under the blood of Jesus. And those are the only two categories of human beings across all history. And so what you want to do is you want to come under the Son so that the Father will be able to show you mercy instead of judgment, okay? And that's what it is to be a Christian. It's to come under the sun.